Some of you may know um, we're in the process of converting uh, the office over here in the Fellowship Hall area uh, to, a, to a, I guess, reverting back to what it was originally constructed to be, which is an office for the pastor. I've been working for the last couple of months or so, uh, or at least attempting to work, out of my, my house. Uh, and so with four children, uh, working from the house sometimes doesn't work. And so uh, uh, several folks have been gracious enough to chip in and to help uh, make that project possible. And as that's been going on, there have been different things that have had to be done. Different, uh, not major things, but just some skill-oriented type of work that had to be taken care of in some other rooms, in that room, and so on and so forth. And I'm always amazed at those who have great skill in those areas. My high school baseball coach told me, and I have told you this before, but it's worth repeating to put this in perspective as to why I'm so impressed. He told me, he said, Burns, that's what he used to call me, he said, Burns, if, he said, I really hope that, that you find a job one day where you can use your brain. He said, because if you have to work with your hands, you're going to starve. I said, thank you, coach. That's good advice. And so here I am today with what little brain I have trying to use it because Lord knows, as Coach Miller did, that I cannot work with my hands whatsoever. I, I can't make anything or construct anything. I can tear things apart. Now, I'm pretty good at that. If you can swing a sledge, then I'm with you. I understand. But, but I am very impressed by those who have carpentry skills, those who are craftsmen, those who can take something seemingly that's out of nothing and make something that is really, really impressive and really beautiful and really valuable. And I've seen some of that in these projects that have been going on. And, and it's amazing how folks who know how to use their hands and construct something, know how to use the tools correctly. They're just amazing people to me. Some of you are just like that. Some of you, there, there, are, uh, there are things in this church that you've helped to build. And I look at those and I think, my goodness, you know, I'm thankful for people like that who make up for my uh, lack of being able to do that. I don't know if you have, have come across it uh, or not, but one of the more impressive things that I've found, and I saw it several years ago when I was a youth pastor, it took a, a youth group down to Georgia, North Georgia, for a camp. And at this campsite, it was sort of in the mountains, a little private campsite, and, and uh, one of the guys who was on staff there was a chainsaw sculptor. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen chainsaw art before, but I, I looked at it and I thought, that came from a chainsaw? This guy took a big piece of wood, a big stump, basically, and carved it with a chainsaw to make some really incredible things. And I'm not just talking about, you know, a rectangle. You know, I mean, I might be able to do that. I might be able to make a rectangle. And if I maybe gave it some really obscure name, it might be really valuable. I don't know. That's what modern art, I guess, is all about. But anyway... But I, I was so amazed. He made a, a giant grizzly bear. You know, it's about this tall. And he had a, a falcon and some other things. And I'm thinking, that came from a chainsaw. Now, I thought about this morning bringing in a big, you know, stump and a chainsaw. But, you know, I'd like to be able to move into that office, you know, and, and keep my job. And so, um, <clears throat> so anyway, I didn't bring the chainsaw and fire that up this morning. But this guy was so incredible. And, and you think of, of what he did. He took something that was that had no form, had no shape whatsoever, that, and then applied something that seems very chaotic and even violent. You think of chainsaw, you think of cutting things down, and he took it, and he made something that's very unique, very beautiful, and in that part of the world is extremely valuable. People pay big money for his sculptures. 
And I think of God's work in our lives, and it's sometimes much the same way. God sometimes uses tools in His hands that we would first look at and say, there's no way that anything beautiful could come from that. We look at our lives and we say, it's, it's wrecked by sin, and it's, it's messed up by all this hardship and things that I've been through and layers and layers of junk. And then it seems as if God Himself has come in sometimes with a chainsaw. <laughs> not, not a chisel, but sometimes with a chainsaw. This, this violent approach, it seems sometimes, and yet he turns it into something that conforms to his will, brings about salvation, brings about sanctification, that process of making us holy, brings that about in our lives. And as I draw those analogies, I'm sure you have things that, that come to your mind that say, you know what, I can think of times when it felt like God was taking a chainsaw to my life. And, and I was pretty good as a stump. I was happy being a stump. I'll just be a stump for the rest of my life if it means God's going to come at me with a chainsaw. But it's interesting how God, the master craftsman, don't miss the fact that Jesus came as a carpenter. The master craftsman, God himself, takes the tools that only he can use, and he molds and he shapes and he cuts away and he properly handles those things to, to make our lives what he wants them to be, to do what only he can do. One of the tools that he uses we'll look at today, and, and that tool is the tool of, of hardship. Now, we have been, for the last several months, in a series that we've looked at different lives in the Scripture. We've looked now, this is our 11th life that we've looked at. So if you're ready to move on from this series, we're on number 11, okay? But we have been in, a, I think, a really fascinating study, a biographical study of many people in the Scripture. And we're arriving today at the Apostle Paul. And every character that we have seen, every single one of them, and it's by no accident whatsoever. Every one of them has faced a good deal of hardship in their lives. And we come to the Apostle Paul, and he is the author, of course, of half the New Testament, uh, the, the first and greatest missionary that Christianity has ever known. And he is this guy that we look at, and he almost seems superhuman. He almost seems a little bit abnormal to us, as if he's not made of the same substance that we're made of. And yet the Bible clearly shows that even someone like Paul, even someone like all the characters we looked at, face great hardship. And we learn from their lives, not only that that's normal in life to face, but how do we handle those things? Because the truth is, those who walk closely with God are obviously not immune to hardship and sometimes endure more of it than those who walk far from God. And so I want us to turn this morning to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, if you know your Bible at all, you'll know that Acts is in the New Testament. It's, it follows the, the Gospels. If you're not familiar with the Bible, we, we always tell you, please don't let that stop you. Go to the table of contents in your Bible, look it up, the, Bible's divided in Old and New Testament. You'll see the book of Acts. That's not Acts, A-X. That's A-C-T-S, Acts. That's where we go along with the chainsaw theme, though, if we had an Acts. <clears throat> anyway, Acts chapter 16. Now, let me give you an idea here of kind of what's going on. We, we, we pick up this story when Paul is on his second missionary journey, beginning that, and he's heading into Europe. And in the first 15 verses of this particular chapter of Acts 16, the first five verses, he, he has had a disagreement uh, with Barnabas, and they part ways, and, 
and he joins up with Silas and with Timothy, and he launches out with some new partners on a new mission to reach a new part of the world that he's not been to before. And, and, and then he faces in verses 6 through 10 some closed doors. It was obvious that God was not doing some work in those areas, and Paul is, uh, is urged to move on. He's redirected, and we come to verse 11, and that through 15, we see the conversion of a woman named Lydia, and they celebrate, and they have a, a big party together because she is converted to faith in Jesus Christ. And so you see this, Paul launching into a new era of his ministry with some new people around him. He faces some closed doors in his ministry. He's redirected, and then he has this celebration with a woman who's given her life to Jesus Christ. And we pick it up in verse 16, where we're going to see Paul face some hardship that seems to be very difficult to overcome. Look with me in verse 16 of Acts chapter 16. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction and made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, pause there. What we're going to do is sort of work through this verse by verse and get an idea of how all this fits together. So you see here, Paul and Silas and those who were with them were on their way to prayer. They're, they're on their way to go to a service where they would pray for their ministries, pray for the folks who were lost, and, and, and they meet along the way a slave girl. They're in the middle of God's will. Keep that in mind. That sort of colors this whole story in a way that sometimes we don't particularly like. We think that sometimes the hardships we face come because we've really made some, some really knucklehead moves, and that's the cause. But Paul, we find, as he's on his way to prayer, he encounters this slave girl. She has a spirit of prediction. Now, the Greeks called this the python spirit. It represented the god Apollo, who... Uh, was uh, believed to have the spirit of prediction. He could predict the future. And the pagan culture in this time, as it is today, was very interested in knowing the future. And in fact, it was interesting, and I came across something that referenced the fact that leaders of countries and, and emperors and even military leaders would rarely make major decisions or go into big military campaigns without consulting a fortune teller. How's this going to turn out? And so this was a very, very popular and very important thing during this time in the pagan culture. And it says that she made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. The people who owned her made a killing off of her because she had this spirit of prediction. So she's a gold mine for them. Look at verse 17. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men are the slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. But Paul was greatly aggravated and turning to the Spirit said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. She obviously could tell, the Spirit in her could tell the true nature of Paul's preaching, of his ministry, who he represented. Uh, and and it's, it, the folks that I studied this week are, are sort of conflicted on why was he so aggravated. Uh, some said that maybe she was confusing the crowd by by speaking in language that maybe was a little bit uh, vague in their pagan worship, they could have thought there were many ways to salvation. And she's just making this seem like Jesus is just one other way and so on. But regardless of why he is aggravated, he obviously gets a little bit upset and he turns to this spirit and casts it out of her. And he does so, and, and what happens in verse 19 is where his hardship begins. When her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Now, Paul delivered this young woman from a demon, and he's going to pay the price for it. 
he is, he is responsible not only for delivering her, but for emptying the gold mine that her owners enjoyed. And this is where the problem for Paul and Silas begins. So they're seized, they're taken into the marketplace to the authorities. Marketplace is the center of town. Think of the town square in Murray. Uh, we drag somebody down to the courthouse. Think of that. And, and here they, they drag them before the authorities. You know, I kind of think of, of uh, the days gone by when Judge Wapner would sit in the people's court. And, and they would, you know, the plaintiff and the defendant would walk in and you've got the real serious music. You know, I'm not sure if the serious music was playing at this time, but it's, it kind of puts it in context. And here they come before the judge. And it had some steps there, and it's kind of sort of arena in the middle of town, and, and, and here they are dragged before the judge. And end in verse 20. In bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or to practice. The charges against them, they're seriously disturbing the city. Now that's a little bit vague. Uh, we, we don't see in verses 16 through 18 how they were seriously disturbing the city. What's the real problem that the owners have with Paul and Silas? What did they lose? Their money. Absolutely. I'm glad you're following along. That's good. That's good. They lose their money. But isn't it interesting how they face a hardship not based upon the truth, but based upon a lie? These men are seriously disturbing our city. Now, the magistrates during this time had the responsibility, much like our elected officials, our, our law enforcement today, they had the responsibility to maintain law and order. So you take them before these people who are responsible to maintain law and order and tell them the city's in chaos because of these people. Basically, what you're doing is playing on the fact that, wait a minute, these magistrates are not doing their job and they get their feathers ruffled just a little bit. You think about that. Not a true charge, but they play to the responsibility of these magistrates to maintain law and order. Then they say they are Jews. Now, we just think, reading that, well, no, they're just describing who they are. They play here on the prejudices of the crowd that probably had gathered around. They didn't like Jewish people. They didn't understand them, didn't like them. They didn't follow all the Roman customs. This was a national and, and ethnic prejudice against the Jewish people. They are Jews. This was not a description. This is an insult. This is something they're trying to rally the crowd. So they, they're causing serious disturbance. They are Jews and they're promoting illegal customs. In this time, it was illegal for the Jews, according to Roman law, to evangelize and try to get anyone else to join them. And certainly in Christianity, it was the same way. The Roman government tolerated all religions and yet didn't want anyone evangelizing. And so they come to them, and there's an ounce of truth to this, I suppose. They're promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or to practice. So they talk about their national pride. They're, they're disrupting the city, law and order. They're Jews. They're not like us. We don't like them anyway. And they're promoting things that as Romans we just don't do. The slave owners obviously are avoiding the real issue, which you mentioned earlier was the fact that they lost their money. So none of the charges against Paul and Silas are valid in any way. Not a single one is really valid. Were they disturbing the city? No. They disturbed the slave owners. Uh, was there any particular reason that prejudice should have been justified? No, but they played to the emotion of the crowd. 
Were they really breaking all kinds of laws that were unlawful for the Romans? No, not really. But despite the illegitimacy of the charges, they stuck. Look at verse 22. Then the mob joined in and attacked against them. And the chief magistrate stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. Here's the verdict. Guilty. Absolutely guilty. Paul and Silas get no chance to defend themselves whatsoever. They are rendered guilty because of these false charges. The mob rallies against these unpatriotic Jews that they didn't like anyway. The magistrates are furious. They're not going to allow them to break any laws or to cause disturbances. They order them to be beaten and to be thrown into jail. Not only thrown into jail, but securely guarded. And they're thrown into the inner prison in the stocks. And the stocks, of course, had different holes for the head, the hands, the feet. And after being beaten and laid open, their wounds, here they are in this excruciatingly painful condition and position of being in the stocks. And so they face all sorts of hardship here. Aggravation from the devil himself through this evil spirit. They face the anger and revenge of people who didn't like them and who had lost something because they were doing good. They faced false accusations in front of the entire town. They faced prejudice. They're accused of being bad citizens, accused of breaking the law. Then they're isolated as the mob rallies against them. They stand alone. They face injustice as the magistrates don't listen to them, but listen to the mob and these false accusations. They face physical hardship. They're beaten severely. They face people going overboard where they throw them not into prison only, but into the inner cell, and not only into the inner cell, but in stocks. What do you do at this point? If you're Paul and Silas, and all you did was something godly, and all you did was something beneficial for a person who desperately needed to be delivered of that, and you face all of this hardship because of that, what do you do? They faced this hardship they did not bring on themselves. You been there? You ever face somebody who doesn't like you just because of where you grew up? You ever been a Louisville Cardinal fan in the midst of all Kentucky fans? <laughs> it's hard. Listen, I, I just, you know, I'm going to pour my heart out to you. It's all. <clears throat> But in all seriousness, have you ever faced anything? I mean, somebody just doesn't like you, and you can't figure out why. All you've been is nice to them. You've done everything you can for them. They just plain don't like you. You can't figure out why. You ever face somebody who seems to be out to get you, and they'll do anything they can to make themselves look better than you? They're jealous. They're bitter. They're angry. They look at you, and they just don't like you. You ever faced false accusations? Somebody said something that just was not true. My goodness. We see that in our world a lot. You ever face hardship that you didn't ask for, <laughs> that you didn't do anything to deserve whatsoever? I guarantee you that if I were to ask for a show of hands and we were to parade everyone up here and we put this microphone up and we say, tell us your story of hardship that you didn't earn or deserve, we could be here a long time. And each one of us would have our hearts ripped out by hearing the stories of the people just even in this church who have faced those kinds of hardship. What do you do? 
What, what would Paul and Silas do when they're just serving the Lord, just on their way to prayer, just delivering people who needed to be delivered, and they face hardship because they're serving the Lord? Now, as we're going to learn about and through the response of Paul and Silas, we're going to discover a great truth. And I want you to make sure you get this down somewhere. You'll see on the back of your bulletin, follow along. Some of you are note takers, some of you are not. But this is one that because of the hardship we'll face in our lives, and it's relentless, and it's every day, and it's every year, you need this principle posted somewhere. Write it backwards on your forehead to look at it in the mirror. I don't know what you do. Put it on your dashboard, whatever it takes. But we must understand and remind ourselves over and over and over and over that hardship is a tool in God's hands. Hardship is a tool in God's hands. What we're going to learn from Paul's life this morning is just that. Now, if you think about what hardship is in our hands, hardship is a cause for depression. Hardship is a cause for bitterness, for unforgiveness. Hardship is anything but a great tool to shape our lives in our hands. But in God's hands, it's an incredible tool. Even though sometimes we, the stumps, will feel like God is coming after us with a chainsaw. It is still a, to still a tool in His hands. Look at verse 25 and we'll begin to see what they learned. About midnight, Paul and Silas complained to each other and to God about what had happened to them and how unfair it was and how what in the world did they do wrong to deserve all this and how they were wishing they really hadn't gone into missionary work in the first place. It's got to be in there somewhere. I'm, it's got to be. Maybe it's in uh, the concordance. You know, I, I, is your version a little different than that? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Now pause there for just a second let that sink in. I don't know about you, but I think I do. Because I'm human and I assume that most of you are as well. But the typical human response is to complain. To wonder. To lose hope to want to give up, to say, well, I wish I really hadn't been this serious about doing what's right in the first place because I could have avoided all of this hardship. If I just was sort of like everybody else, my life would probably be a little bit easier. And human nature leads us down that path. But there's something about Paul and Silas that leads them to pray and to sing hymns to God. They didn't complain to one another. They didn't wonder what they had done wrong. They simply... At midnight, no less. Not the hour of prayer. Remember, they're on their way to prayer. That's interrupted. So it's not the hour of prayer. It's certainly not the house of prayer. They're in the middle of the, of the prison. And yet, they're praying. They're singing hymns to God. We learn that through this that hardship is that tool in God's hands. And it's something He uses to strengthen us. You see incredible strength and joy somehow in Paul and Silas as they're singing, as they're praying. They're shackled, they're bleeding, they're hurting. They're probably in some sort of state of shock as to what just happened. Oh my goodness, how did that happen today? All we did was go to prayer and cast out a demon, and here we are beaten in the prison. But their response is both amazing and it's compelling. It's convicting. They're praying and singing. 
Now, what's interesting is there's no indication as to really what they're praying for. So we don't have here that they're praying for their release. They may have been. I don't know. It doesn't say that they are. But they're simply praying. And in the midst of their praying, they're singing. They're doing it at the same time. So, so maybe their prayer just sort of leads into a song, or their song leads into a prayer, or their song was a prayer, both at the same time. And these guys apply the time-tested and biblical response to suffering and hardship, which is prayer and praise. How exactly and why were they able to do all this? I believe they had God's perspective on the matter. Paul himself, when he was converted to faith, uh, has the Lord who, who says that he's going to show Paul how much he has to suffer for the cause of Christ. Paul knew that his suffering was part of his calling to faith. Paul also knew and he wrote about the fact that his present suffering was, was, was nothing in comparison to what one day he would gain in the presence of Jesus. Paul had the right perspective. He understood that what is here on earth is only temporary. He considered himself, he said, to be worthy of, of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Wow, what an incredible privilege, he said. To share in the sufferings of Christ. To know what Jesus went through. He had that perspective. And that perspective led them to prayer. The truth is we receive our strength in our suffering when we are on our knees before the Lord. Not when we're analyzing the situation. Now, I, I, I'm, I am a an overly analytical person. I've got to know every reason for everything that ever happened so I can prevent that from happening to me. You there? I'm awful at that. I just, oh my goodness, if something happens to somebody, well, I'll just trace it back to say, well, you know, there's the reason right there. And if I don't do that, I'm good. You know what I'm saying? You've been there? You know, it's anything in life that happens. If somebody has financial problems or somebody has an accident or, or, or they have health issues, I, I'm always trying to figure out where was the root cause of that? That's not, however, where we find our strength in the midst of suffering and hardship. We don't find it by trying to, to figure out everything that caused it. We certainly don't find it by complaining. We receive our strength and suffering when we are on our knees before the Lord. James would write in chapter 5, if you're afflicted, if you're suffering, pray. He doesn't say go and try to figure out with all your friends why in the world it happened. He says, get on your knees before the Lord. They had a great perspective, understanding that suffering was part of their experience. That perspective led them to prayer, and their prayer was joined with praise. I wonder what they sang. They're singing hymns to God. I wonder what they sang. Maybe, maybe they sang something like Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploy against me, my heart is not afraid. Though war break out against me, still I am confident. I've asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking Him in His temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in his tents with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. In your behalf, my heart says, seek my face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. 
You have been my help. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversity, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes or false witnesses, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be courageous and let your heart be strong. Wait for the Lord. What if they sang an old Hebrew song just like that? A song of confidence in the Lord. Yes, a song of honesty. God, I don't understand. Lord, people have risen up against me. God, I'm facing hardship. But I know you and I place my trust and my faith in you for you are good and I will wait on you and I will see your deliverance. There's something about music. There's something about singing that cuts directly to our hearts. And it gets past everything and it speaks to our hearts in ways that some other things maybe cannot. And in our hardships, we're strengthened by having that right perspective on our suffering, by praying and by praising God. I am convinced that for many of us here, probably most of us here, we have not put these principles into practice in our lives. And I say that honestly because I am with you in that. I struggle in this area when hardship comes to have the right perspective, to immediately go to my knees in prayer before the Lord, not as a prayer of complaint, but as a prayer that includes praise to God. It's a struggle. Imagine you would agree with that. It's not our first response most often, but I'm convinced that we need to immediately put these things into practice. Absolutely. Leaving here today, even before you leave today, maybe this morning, as we'll close later on with a song, maybe you need to get on your knees before the Lord and just pray. And you may not even know the words to say. You may not even want to pray. (laughs) You may not even have anything on your mind that says anything about, yes, I want to talk to God today. But maybe, just maybe, that's where you'll receive your strength today that you've been looking for through all of the suffering. The truth is that you and I are going to face hardship, but it is a tool in God's hands to strengthen us. We see also, beginning in verse 26 of Acts chapter 16, that hardship not only strengthens us, but it's a tool in God's hands to display His power. And this is incredible. In verse 26, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. Now, we need to be careful here because this is not a formula. Um, This is not prescriptive. This is descriptive of what happened. We, We don't manipulate God into bringing some earthquake in our lives that's going to shake loose all the foundations and the, and the chains that we're in by some prayer that we pray or some song that we sing. It doesn't work that way. But understand that, that in, in this hardship, this is how God was choosing to display His power and bring glory to Himself in the midst of their hardship, in the midst of their prayer and praise. He did something that only He can do. And this is how He brought about their deliverance by this earthquake. And despite the chains, think about this, despite the chains that held them, despite being in the inner prison, despite being in the stocks, God could still deliver them. It's interesting that they put them in the most heavily guarded space that they knew of and was not beyond God's deliverance. 
It was not beyond where God could reach. You might be facing this morning the absolute darkest times that you have ever known in your life. And no one here knows it but you, maybe your spouse, some close friends or family. Maybe you're going at it alone. You may be in the darkest time that you've ever faced. But God is still willing. God is still able to deliver you, to lift you up out of that pit, to set your life, your emotions, your mind, your will, all on solid ground. And that's how His power is displayed in our lives, when He delivers our minds from that depression. When He delivers our will from being against Him and He sets us on solid ground and turns us toward Him. He displays His power through those things. No one else, it's very clear here in this story and in our lives we know, can bring us the deliverance we need when we're suffering like Paul and Silas. No one was on the way to rescue them. They're alone. They're going to suffer in that prison. And maybe it seemed hopeless to all that were around them, but God displayed His power in the midst of their difficult hardship. He freed them from their chains and obviously can do the same in our lives. Let me tell you this, hardship, though it is difficult, though it is part of the human experience, it does not have to ruin you. It does not have to ruin you. It's real, it's painful, but those who know Jesus Christ have, as Paul wrote, In one of his letters, the power of the resurrection at work in our lives. We have, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, with his Holy Spirit living inside of us, not just a better life, but we have the very power of the resurrection living inside of us. The power that raised Jesus from the dead can be at work in your marriage, can be at work in your family, can be at work in your depression can bring to life things that seem to be dead because that's what God did in Jesus Christ in His resurrection. It can be applied to your dying marriage, to your addiction, your confusion, your confusion, your hardship. There is hope, but let me tell you this. It is only, only, only found in the person of Jesus Christ and and Him alone. Not in good analytical skills, Not in saying the right words, but only found in the power of Christ. Hardship is a tool in God's hands to display His power in our lives. Then look at verse 27. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he he thought the prisoners had escaped. Obviously, his responsibility to keep them there and if if he's going to face some serious punishment. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself because all of us are here. Then the jailer called for lights. He's shocked. (laughs) He rushed in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Hardship is a tool in God's hands to strengthen us, to display His power, and to reach others. Some of you have experienced this. What you've been through has been an incredible tool God has used to allow you entry into someone's life that otherwise you would have been denied access to. Paul and Silas here are freed, but they stay behind. They realize that their deliverance wasn't just for them. It had a bigger purpose. God was going to use that in some different way than just for their benefit. Their faithfulness and their witness had an impact on the other prisoners. We see earlier that they were listening. And it's through their hardship that this jailer is changed forever. 
Verse 31, after he asked, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them up to his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had believed God with his entire household. The jailer at first has his life spared. Paul says, don't fall on your sword. (laughs) We're all still here. He has his physical life spared through the hardship that Paul faces and what God was doing. Not only that, far and away more important, but his soul was saved. What must I do to be saved? He sees God's power. He sees the witness of these faithful men. He'd probably heard the, the little girl who was delivered, heard that story, the message she was proclaiming, and then he finally comes to, to understand it's true and it's real, and he falls down and his soul is saved from believing on Jesus Christ. We can find salvation in no way but through faith. Understand, faith is necessary for salvation. It is not automatic. We don't gain it just by being born into a Christian family. We don't gain it just by being born in America. We must come to Jesus through faith. And then he shows evidence of that faith. Here's a jailer who I'm sure joined in with everyone else and said, yeah, let's punish these guys real bad. And what does he do? He's the one who washes their wounds. He's the one who brings them into his own house with his own family, these criminals, and he shares a meal with them. He came to faith by grace, came to Jesus rather, by grace through his faith, and then he gives evidence, obviously, of his faith. His life is saved, his soul is saved, and then we see a great celebration because his family gets saved. Now, don't, don't, don't misinterpret what this scripture is talking about. This jailer did not get saved, and by proxy, all of his family just sort of joined in. They all had to come to Jesus the same way the jailer did, and that was through their personal faith. It wasn't something that just because dad got saved that everybody else was good to go as well. If you're a young person here today, or maybe a middle-aged or even an older person, and you grew up or are growing up in in a home that has Christian parents, understand that there is nothing automatic. God does not count their faith as your faith. You must come to Jesus on your own as well. And I praise God for those of you here that are, that are raising children in Christian homes, but we must understand as parents, and I've got four of them, that each one of them must come to faith in Jesus Christ on their own. Just because I'm the pastor does not automatically mean that all four of my children are somehow in. They all must come to faith in Jesus Christ on their own. So it required their faith. But what an incredible celebration they had as this hardship was used as a tool in God's hands to reach other people. Used for the saving of this jailer and his family. Now as we looked at this story this morning, I really believe this should bring you some hope and encouragement. I sensed even maybe just a little bit of joy this morning when you were singing. I sit up here, I get to listen to you. So days when... When I can tell that, well, we've got some stuff that's going on. I, well, I can tell. Maybe we're a little distracted. Maybe we've had a hard week. But I, I sensed a little bit of joy this morning in the songs that we praise the Lord this morning through the music. And I hope that even as you leave today, there's more hope, there's more encouragement, that you've had your, your faith increase this morning as you see hardship as a tool in God's hands that He strengthens us and displays His power and He reaches others. But I do want to remind you, as I mentioned earlier that Paul and Silas were very ordinary people. 
They're not superhuman. They are able to praise God and to endure hardship, not because of their great strength, but because Jesus lived in them. They'd been made new by the power of Jesus Christ. And through faith, they received His salvation. And through their faith, they're being conformed to be like Him. They trusted in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only means for salvation. And we must do the same. The Bible says there is no other name by which we must be saved but that of Jesus Christ. There is no other path, Jesus said, for salvation. There is no other way to God but through Him. These men were just like you and I. Ordinary people who were human. But they had the power of Jesus Christ in them that they had received by God's grace through their faith. And it's only after surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ that they found this kind of hope. It didn't just come from within. They didn't just try harder. It's only then that they could see hardship from God's perspective. That they could see it not as something meant to cut them up. But when God came at them with that chainsaw, they could see it as a, as a tool that God was using to strengthen them. As a tool God was going to use to display His power, as a tool God would use to reach others and to create in their lives something beautiful. And if you're looking for hope this morning, if you're looking for your eyes to be lifted, you'll only find that in the person of Jesus Christ. If you're looking for forgiveness, for significance, for wondering if you have any value whatsoever, you'll only find that in Jesus Christ who has declared that through His blood shed on the cross that we are forgiven. He's declared that by His death and resurrection we actually have some value. He alone can provide all of that. And maybe like the jailer in this story, today is the day that you fall on your knees and you say, I want to be saved. I want to experience eternal life. I want that hope. I want to see life from God's perspective. I want to see my hardship as a tool in God's hands. Maybe, just as that jailer, you'd place your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, and you'd submit to Him and receive eternal life. Hardship, as we well know, is unavoidable, but there is hope. It's a tool in God's hands to strengthen, to display His power, to reach others. And in our hardship, we know that we are accountable, that we are on display before the world. That we are often right where God wants us to be, in the center of God's will, even in the midst of our hardship. And we know that in that hardship, God is at work. So I encourage you, don't give up. Submit to the Lord. Endure your hardship with the Lord's strength, not your own. Pray. Sing praises to God. Seek His perspective. Remain faithful. Look for ways in the midst of your hardship to witness with your life, with your attitudes, with your actions, and with your words. We're going to close this morning not in a, a hymn of somber reflection, but in a hymn of praise, declaring our victory that was sealed at the cross, the victory that we have over sin and death and over hardship that we face in this life. We're going to close in just a moment with a song called Victory in Jesus. And maybe today you'd say, you know what? This is the darkest time I've known, but I'm going to follow the time-tested pattern for response in the time of suffering and hardship. And I'm going to pray this morning. And I'm going to praise God. 
And then tomorrow when I have to face it all over again, I'm going to pray and I'm going to praise God. And I'm going to seek out how, God, are you using this to strengthen me? God, how are you going to display your power in the midst of my hardship? God, how will you use what I'm facing to reach someone else? God, I submit to you. I'd like to invite you, if you would, to stand with me. Danny's going to come and, and lead us. And before we do, I want you to take just a moment with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Before we celebrate and praise as we close this morning, I want you to pray. Maybe for the first time in a long time. Maybe your prayer this morning is one of, Lord, save me. I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the one who died for my sins, and I want you to save me. Maybe your prayer is today, Lord, I don't even know what to say. (laughs) My hardship is overwhelming. Maybe your prayer is, God, show me how this is a tool in your hands. Before we sing, I want you to spend a moment in prayer. Father, we give you our hardship. We pray with words that we don't even know how to speak. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you that hardship is a tool in your hands. We pray that you would strengthen us. That you, in the midst of our difficult times, would display your power. That you would use that for your glory in reaching other people. God, may we be encouraged and full of joy, even in the midst of of the darkest times maybe that we've known. Lord, may we, not only this morning, but Lord, sometime on Thursday when it's hard, may we follow the example of Paul and Silas, and may we pray, and may we praise God. Thank you, Lord, for your victory on the cross, your victory over the grave and sin and death. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.